Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite murder street podcast, and ours too. I'm your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And we're here to talk today about the episode, If the Frame Fits, which is the season finale of the second season. I can't believe we've made it this far, but we're still chugging along here at Cabot Cove Gazette. So, Bridget, do you want to give us a summary of this episode? Sure. Um, before I do, I'd just like to say uh, that means it's one year down, Tej, and five more to go for us. It is, yeah. That's a lot of years. Do you think we'll still be friends in five years? <laughs> do you think podcasts will still exist in five years? I mean, do I think the country will still exist in five years? I mean, there's a lot of, you know, <laughs> okay. there's a lot of ifs involved anyway, in this so scenario. Anyway, so what happens in this episode is... <laughs> So what happens in this episode is Jessica's visiting her friend, uh, Hoity Toity Publisher in Cedar Heights, upstate New York, in this um, elite community, and there's a string of art theft, art thefts happening, and uh, one night it appears that someone broke into her friend's daughter's house and murdered his daughter, and it might have been the art thief, it might have been someone else, it might have been his husband. And the episode is called If the Frame Fits, and I think it's such a wonderful title for this because um, everyone keeps framing everyone else for the murder. Mm-hmm. But Jessica, of course, eventually unravels the truth, which is exactly as we thought the crime was committed in the first place. Right. It's very which, clever. Yeah, which was a nice twist. I will say that that was a twist that neither myself nor my partner got. Like, we knew that there was something suspicious about... Because, you know, one of the key things in the uncovering is that the father when he discovers the body, speaks of her cold fingers, which throws into doubt the time of the death. So we assumed that perhaps her sister had done it and that the father was covering up with the sister. And so it was all, but we were, you know, not at all correct. (laughs) Well, let's start at the beginning so we don't confuse people. So the father, um, his name is Lloyd. He's played by Norman Lloyd. And um, the daughter is Julia. She's only in it for a hot minute, just enough for us to know that she's totally miserable with her life with Donald, her husband, who is presumably cheating on her. Although part of the confusion of the clues is like, is he really or is he not? And yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he right. kills her for the insurance policy. You know, the most banal and yet totally expected motive one could expect, but yet it still works because as of, you know, as you alluded to, the episode does such a good job of, you know, keeping us guessing about what exactly is the motive. And it seems like that would be too easy, but... As, you know, as they say, the simplest yeah. solution is often the right one. And the, and the other thing I really like about this, Tej, is that you and I often gripe about, like, why on earth did murderer X commit this murder with Jessica Fletcher in the building? And in this case, it it's not, like, he would not have known Jessica was visiting. He doesn't really know who Jessica is. He's not really involved with Jessica. And so the fact that he picked this moment to murder his wife is actually really plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, for me, like, most of my gripes about holes in the motives and in the, the the thought processes of the killers, I don't have those gripes with this. Like, it seems com- completely believable. Like, the guy's getting desperate to get out of this unhappy marriage. He wants money. If he divorces her, he won't get any. Um, because it's all from her family side. So the logical thing is to kill her. It just so happens, coincidentally, it was when Jessica was visiting, but he didn't know that. Exactly. I mean, I'm I'm visiting my parents at the moment, and, and you know, being boomers, they watch a lot of investigation discovery. So, I, I mean, this is the motive that does seem pretty plausible altogether. Like, if my many viewings of true crime, cheap documentaries on television is anything to go by, like, this seems one of the more believable episodes in terms of plot motivation. 
Yeah. And of course, he decides that he it would be, as you say, he would be the obvious person to have killed her. So he's going to frame the art thief, right? By making, he puts all these clues around to make it look like the art thief was stealing a painting and happened to murder his wife in the process. Right. And can we talk about the art thief for a moment since you've brought him up a couple of times? Because um, I find this to be both one of the most splendid secondary characters that I've ever seen in a Murder, She Wrote episode. You want to talk about, like, Binky himself? Yes. I mean, because I, well, first of all, let's talk about the name Binky, which is the kind of absurd nickname that one always associates with the posh and the wealthy. Because it's just like, how could you ever take someone seriously with the name Binky? Why is that? Why do, like, the richer you are, the more ridiculous your nickname is, right? Like, normal people, their names like Catherine and their nickname's Kate or Katie, you know, or their name's like John or, and people call him Johnny, but like, extremely wealthy people, their names are always like Skippy Doo and Chipperoo. Like, right. Binky. So it's, it's a very, it's something I think uh, <laughs> British, because if you, if you, if you know anything about like British nobility and like British upper class folk, they also have those ridiculous nicknames like Porky and, you know, other kinds of ridiculous things like that. <laughs> so there is this, well, no, because there's a, there's a, there's a show that I watch in British comedy <laughs> where like someone's name is Porky Hooten and then the, the social climbing woman is like, well, Porky Hooten, that's very public school. So the, you know, there's the <laughs> suggestion that the more ridiculous your nickname, the higher class status you must surely yeah. have. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just that. He also has that kind of performance. And part of that is attributed to, to John Delancey, who's playing him, who I think I excels at creating he is so delightfully mm-hmm. effete. Like, it's just everything about this performance is exactly what you would expect of a person like this. The slightly overwrought vocabulary, the the sort of almost mincing delivery, like, it all just kind of comes together to create this very well-sketched out, set, you know, but also deliciously stereotypical character. And he almost, like, immediately gloms on to Jessica the way we would expect, um her and a gay man to get along. I mean, his character isn't mm-hmm. written as gay. He's like socializing with women and stuff, but there's something, as you say, very effeminate about him, but it's, it's just John Delancey doing John Delancey. Like he's charming. He's sophisticated. He's suave, but there's also something that feels a little bit, um, scandalously gay gossipy about him, you know, like old queen who wants to gossip and he like rubs elbows mm-hmm. with Jessica and they kind of make fun of Lloyd behind his back because he's written this, dreadful mystery novel that he's insistent on Jessica giving feedback on, even though she's very politely trying to avoid doing that because it's so bad. You know, and the two of them were kind of like exchanging winks over it. I just love it. I absolutely love it. Yes, I, I did particularly love their conversation. Like when they're off the road of three gathered in the in the den, um, you know, having this after dinner chat. And then, you know, Lloyd is like, well, let's talk about my book. And Jessica and, and uh, Binky sort of share this knowing <laughs> look, which I mean, those of us who've ever been at academic conference know that look, you know, the, oh dear, here we go, you know. It's also, I mean, I, poor Lloyd, but like, it, he's really not gracious about this at all. It's like the fourth oh, no, time he's, he's insisted on her giving him commentary. And then on the ride home, like, they, it's clear that he is discomfited by- oh, he's crushed, you know, right? The he's criticism. absolutely crushed. Yeah. <laughs> and she's so gracious. She's like, I, because of course it's all couched in, like, it's his friend's manuscript, right? She's like, I think your friend should write something a little closer to their personal experience. Which is such a Jessica Fletcher way of giving feedback saying your book sucks. Yes. I mean, it, it, 
I love it. I do too. I and I was like, good for you, JB. Like, you know, as always, being this, you know, the very essence of charm and 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 graciousness. The graciousness is what always, you know, stands out to me. Like, wouldn't we all love to have a writing partner like JB? Like who could be honest, but no, actually I think she's a little too nice. Like I would like a partner who's a little more uh, blunt. Like I would like Binky to be my writing partner. Cause he'd be blunter. He'd be more helpful in the long run. That's definitely on brand for you. Um, just as my wanting <laughs> gentle criticism is on brand for me. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the dinner party with Binky and Lloyd and Jessica. And I just have to say like, you remember when he proposes it at the country club? I mean, we are really in the world of the, the leisure class, as um, Lloyd's daughter calls them all. Nobody works. Everybody just hangs out at the country club. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, they're at the country club, and he's, like, trying to put together a dinner party, and only the three of them are available. And he says, oh, the servants are going to be crushed because there's not going to be a big dinner party. Right. I mean, what a total snob. I loved that line. Yes. It's just, it just has so much about his character. Right. And it's also revealing that, you know, the reason he's an art thief is because he's broke. Like, which is, yeah. real, you know, which is itself a very interesting piece of social commentary on the sort of yes. emptiness of sort of, as you put it, the leisure class. Like, that behind the facade of pretentiousness and appearances that really it's all just a sham. I mean, he has what we would call like cultural capital, right? Exactly. He hangs out at the country club. He goes to the opera. He knows art, um, but he doesn't have any economic capital. He doesn't actually have the money to support this lifestyle that he's been born into and expects to continue living. And I think that's a really interesting commentary. And of course, that's why he steals the paintings. He takes them to Scotland, hawks them. Um, and I, and we also see that echoed in the character of the mayor, played by Gordon Jump, and his wife, played by Audrey Meadows. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we're going to gush on both of those actors in a second. We sure but are, yeah. We're just told repeatedly throughout the episode that they haven't paid their bill at the country club. And, like, they continue to get to go there and spend money, um, which is kind of amazing. Because, like, if I don't pay my bills, people just, like, lock me out of things. Uh, but when you're rich and connected, you get to just keep doing that. So, so I think, again, it's like the, the pretense, as you say, like everyone in this community has to maintain this facade of extreme wealth. Um, but it really, it's, it's crumbling. It's just a facade. Yep. Which is very, I mean, as we've talked about so many times on this podcast, like that is what's so striking about Murder, She Wrote is just how class conscious it is. Like, yeah. You know, we're we're dealing with the eighties, the sort of height of consumerism and glamour and wealth and all that stuff. And yeah, this is a pretty, it's not as like as in your face, perhaps, as some of the other episodes that we've watched, but there is nevertheless like a pretty potent criticism at, at pointing out the, the ridiculousness of this entire like charade. Yeah, and I think it's um a, an interesting commentary on the Reagan era materialism, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That we're told that we need to aspire to have these things and to live this lifestyle, um, even to the point where we cannot afford it and turn to you know theft to maintain it because by all accounts you must maintain that lifestyle i mean heaven forbid he sell the home and move somewhere cheaper right or get a job right no 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 oh absolutely not no we, we can't do that not with a name like binky where, where would a person like binky <laughs> get a job would he even get <laughs> like can you imagine him, you know working as in the steel mill or something like you know an actual like blue collar labor i think not like he would never soil his precious hands says tj the person who is perhaps even more pretentious than binky but <laughs> That's neither here nor there. So, so Binky is, they don't know that Binky is the thief until much later in the episode. And of course, what I love is that he's not a murderer. He's just a thief. And he's like, you know, to his mind, this has all been very uh, innocuous. 
right? He says, look, all these people had insurance on the paintings, so right. they all got their money for the paintings, and nobody was ever hurt. And so really, the only person that his stuff has harmed is the insurance company, and it's, I suppose, like down the line, driven up rates for everyone, but but there's no like immediate harm to what he's doing, you know? Right, and he's pretty upfront about that. Like, I, I love the sort of blasé way that he just admits to whenever they corner him and finally, you know, get him to confess. He's like, yeah, I did it. You know, I'm sorry, but, you know, I was poor. And, you know, you have to do what you have to do. Sometimes you just have to steal art to make ends meet, you know? <laughs> just like, And, of course, it's very much in yeah, his I character. Love, I love the way you frame that as, like, the um, the person starving on the street justifying stealing a loaf of bread from the store, right? I- I was poor and I had no choice but to steal this priceless work of art and fly to Scotland to hawk it. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty wild. And having, you know, having, getting ready to go to Scotland myself, I'm not, in fact, taking any stolen art. Um, just to clarify, like. Just to make that clear for the customs (laughs) agents. Okay, so, so Donald kills Julia frames yes. the art theft, thief. I keep confusing thief and theft today. Um, whom we later learn is Binky. But then Lloyd spots Julia's door open, goes inside, sees her dead, cleans up the framing of it as the art thief who did it, and frames Donald because he hates him. Because he's made Julia mad and sad. He does hate him a lot. Right. Because he's cause he's also like had an affair at some point with Julia's sister. Before he married Julia. Lots of, this is a very complicated episode when you sort of drill down into it and sort of navigate the plot. Like there's a lot of moving pieces. There are. And yet I think it lands so well. It like does. you and I often talk about plot holes and things that frustrate us. And I never feel that with this. Like it's just, I think it's a really excellent episode. Yes. I felt very satisfied. And it's just fun. Mm-hmm. It's really, I mean, I kept thinking, you know, Jessica staying at the home of a guy who's just lost his daughter, like this. The amount of grief and trauma, right? And lost her to a violent murder. Um, and yet, like, the episode just manages all of this humor throughout, you know? Especially, I think, the humor of Binky and then the humor of Gordon Jump's character and Audrey Meadows' character just being, like, ridiculous rich people who have no right. reason to be ri- I mean, they're obviously, like, nouveau riche. Like, they have no taste, mm-hmm. right? We're told that they have paintings of, like, dogs wearing hats and stuff, like... Everybody else has abstract expressionism in their house, and they have, like, right. poker playing dogs. <laughs> yes, the, the ubiquitous sign of, like, crassness in the 80s and 90s was dogs playing poker. Like, that well, was the... and Gordon Jump's character is always wearing, like, plaid blazers. I mean, he, they just, they look very outlandish. I mean, to be fair, they are golfing, so that is sort of, ta- that is de rigueur, like, you, to wear that kind of outlandish costumes when you're, when you're golfing. At least if the, if, if what I know about golfing from TV is anything to go by. I, he would be probably just wearing pants and, like, a polo, um, but we never actually saw him on the course. That's true. Not like we he saw him. He probably doesn't know how to golf. Probably not. So that's Gordon Jump, right, who's obviously best known from WKRP in Cincinnati, so we almost have the entire cast now appearing and... He's basically playing the same character that he always does. I mean, his character is the mayor, but yes, I you know Playbill when he died, Playbill described him as endearing, round-faced, playing a string of muddled but lovable roles. And I think that like, yep, that's what this is. Yeah, pretty much because he also plays the next door neighbor to the Golden Girls in the first season, who won't pay for their one eye when his tree comes down on it, and he similarly plays a very grouchy but flummoxed character. <laughs> 
grouchy, but there's always still something kind of endearing about yeah, it. Yeah, right? I mean, that's, he really is. And I don't, I think in this, he's less grouchy than he is just like befuddled. He is very befuddled. <laughs> and, but I mean, for me, like, Audrey Meadows, like, that was who stole the show. Like, the minute she appeared, I was like, I mean, I, I recognize her, obviously, but there's just something very sitcom-y about her delivery. Like, you can tell this is a trained, like, sitcom actress. Just the way that she has this affect around her. I was just like, this woman has yeah. clearly, like, mastered how to be a sitcom and then guest star. Like, that's just, like, there's just something about her. It's funny that you had that feeling because there's a moment where it's a medium two-shot of her and Angela Lansbury. And I was thinking the exact same thing. I was thinking, you can tell one was trained in film and one mm-hmm. one invented television, right? Right. Audrey Meadows, of course, um, starred in The Honeymooners, which is one of the first, if not if not the first, television domestic sitcoms. Um, and I, you could just, there's something about her. I was like, she's just so effortless at being a television character actor. Part of it is, you know, she has that kind of smoky, husky voice that is very distinctive. Um, but it's also just kind of like, the acerbity, I think is the word, of her, like the uh, the acerbic delivery. Like there's just an archness to the way mm-hmm. that she gives all the lines, which reminds me a little bit of like um, uh, Agnes Moorhead, like as and like as Andorra and Bewitched. Like I can mm. sort of, there's a, a kind of holdover from an earlier period of TV delivery that I'm sensing, I think, picking up on here. And it's, it's very delicious. Uh-huh. Like it's something just like you can, it's the kind of performance that you can just savor. Well, yeah, and I think the fact that her character is like a big fat gossip really mm-hmm. helps, right? Because what she's talking about is just like revealing all this delicious scandal about the community mm-hmm. while somehow pretending that she and her husband are above it as if yes. they're not like broken in debt. Yeah. And I, and I love particularly like Jessica's response to her because she's just sort of like, I mean, gracious as always, but also clearly just like, this is not someone I want to be like around very much. <laughs> One can see that, like, because, you know, obviously Jessica has been shaped by, like, the more homey, what do I want to call it, like, respectable values of Cabot Cove. So, like, this kind of, like, mm-hmm. almost venomous gossip. I mean, not that there aren't gossips in Cabot Cove, obviously, but it's less venomous than what we see with, with this character. You know, but she's not, like, I mean, she, I think you said she has a smoky voice and her gossip maybe is venomous, but I, she looks adorable, Teach. I mean, how old is she at this point? She looks stunning. And she's still true. got her iconic red hair. And like her sister, Jane, who we saw in the as Lila Lee in Murder by Appointment Only, they both mm-hmm. have these amazing arched eyebrows that I think open their faces and make them just wide and adorable. I mean, I just... Yep, I would say that's very true. She's definitely a scene stealer. Yeah. Yes. And she would have been in her 60s at this point. She dies in 96 at age 73, so she would have been in her 60s. Oh, is that all? Yeah. I guess because The Honeymooners was so long ago, I expected her to be older. I know. Um, but yeah. she looks amazing. I mean, I'm not saying she looked 90 or anything. She looks amazing. Right. I think the yeah. only thing that would have been better is if they'd given her a little dog to carry around. Yes, that would have that would have <laughs> that would have been Chef's kiss. Like that would have been the that would have been the perfect addition. To, so, what do you think about Lloyd? Like, because I, I find him to be a really interesting character, and you know, as you alluded to earlier, like he literally frames someone for a murder they did not. Co- well, they actually did commit, as it turns out, but you know, but but he doesn't know that. So he's a fascinatingly morally ambiguous character. I mean, yeah, I think you make a good point that, you know, what would have happened if Donald hadn't been the murderer? Um, would he have been prosecuted for trying to frame Donald? Because f- he lies to the police. He 
He tampers with the scene of the crime. He stages evidence. He touches evidence, which I guess isn't really a crime in the murder she wrote world because Jessica's always touching evidence. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, I think it raises interesting questions for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that he like loves and cherishes his daughter, which is the whole reason he does this whole business, um, which, you know, obviously makes him a hero to a degree. But it is kind of, you know, when you really pause to think about what he's doing, it's, you know, it's not particularly moral or ethical. <laughs> it, it makes you wonder how Jessica will respond to his friendship after this. And mm-hmm. it's not clear if they have a business relationship. He might be her publisher, um, because he talks about reading everyone else's manuscripts all the time. So there might be a professional relationship too. But, you know, this is one episode where we don't get the happy freeze frame. Um, mm-hmm. What we get at the end is Donald being arrested and Jessica hugs Sabrina, the other sister. Uh, and we just see her hugging her while Sabrina is sobbing because she's now lost her sister and the guy she was in love with. Um, and I, I guess maybe that ending might reflect what you're talking about, that... Mm-hmm. That there's this world has been kind of shattered. And even though we talk about the arrest as making things right again, maybe things aren't totally right again. Right. And I mean, uh, what I, it's part of the reason I really enjoyed this episode is it's one of those that really, I think, brings in the domestic melodrama. Cause obviously there's the, you know, Sabrina and her sister both, you know, having feelings for the same man. And I always kind of, I love those kinds of episodes. You know, they're, you know, obviously a little bit soap opera ish, but I don't mean that as a pejorative. I just mean that, you know, that's the kind of plots one gets from soap operas. And I, I like those because I'm an old lady when it comes right down to it. So I just don't even know where to go with that comment. There's so many things. Melodrama is kind of like soap, but soap isn't bad. But I'm like an old lady because old ladies watch soaps. They do. Okay. <laughs> um, we need to talk about our beloved police chief in Cedar Heights, yes. New York. Played by the inimitable Cliff Gorman, whom I am madly in love with because he plays Emery in The Boys in the Band, Mm. both the 1969 Broadway play and the 1970 movie. And because after that movie, um, I think someone will double check my figures here, but I think something like four or five ninths of the cast... Uh, actually did die of AIDS complications. That is correct. And he nursed some of them because he was not a gay man. And that doesn't mean you can't get AIDS. But, you know, in the 80s, largely those who were dying from the AIDS epidemic were gay men. And his castmates were, and they did. And he actually nursed some of them during their final years. So I'm I'm totally in love with Cliff Gorman. Right. I did not know that about him. But I did find him very attractive in this role. And I found him very sexy in that way that 80s men tend to be very sexy. And I also just loved the character. Like, I loved his kind of brash New York City accent. The way he, you know, this the whole kind of persona that you would expect from a former New York City cop. The persona of this, like gruff cop with these giant glasses and then he's like super butch he's always like fixing the plumbing right. and yeah i i just yep. thought he was an adorable character and one of my favorite lawmen that we have seen in the show and i got enjoyed getting to spend more time with him and he clearly has a great bond with jessica like they you know hit it off right off the bat he seemed to really respect her and and respect working beside her and I tend to like the episodes more where Jessica gets along with the agents of the law. I mean, I, obviously there's fun whenever yeah. she, they don't like her, but I always enjoy the ones where she works with the legal system. 
And Me too, because I think the ones where she doesn't, are, it gets a little flat. It's like, yeah. you stay out of this investigation, lady. And she's like, okay, but I'm going to get involved anyway. And then they're like, I warned you. Stick to the novels, Miss Fletcher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. This isn't like your books. And then she like solves it. So it's always kind of the same thing. Yep. I also, I think that the moment that really um, won me to him, Teach, did you notice in that final scene, they're in the, they're mm-hmm. at the wake, right? Like, like Julia's body is in the casket and Donald and Sabrina are talking over it. And when he and ch- the chief and Jessica come in, did you notice he like, he takes his hat off for a minute and hangs his head and then he puts his hat back on and then talks to Donald. Like he takes this beat. I don't know if it was scripted or if it was him as an actor, but it's like this very deliberate beat where he is paying respect to the, the person who is dead. And I just thought that was such a lovely grace note um, that, you know, tells us so much about his character. It does. And I, I, first of all, let me say I approve of the use of grace note, even if you used it and not me. But secondly, I do agree with you. And I think that what it captures is he's a decent guy. Like, and I think that, you know, there's something in our very cynical age that we tend to live in. There's something really delightfully refreshing about decency, like just common decency, like that we sometimes is, is, is considered passe or not cool or whatever. But I think that, you know, we have these characters in shows like Murder Show, which Murder Show is a decent show. And I don't mean that in sort of an aesthetic way. I mean it as a as an ethos. I mean that it's guided by the law, you know, the laws of decency. Right. It's sort of its comp- moral compass. Right. Which seems, as I said, very uncool in 2022. But I find that kind of refreshing, and mm-hmm. and I think that that's what you're. That I would agree 100 percent with what you're talking about there. This is really good writing because all of these people are like incredibly layered characters in just a few scenes. Because we also learn that he's really frustrated with his job. He's broke. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't get paid anything, even though this community is so wealthy. And he mentions to Jessica that, like, he could be a plumber and make a lot more money, which is something that I, as someone who's overeducated and have what seems to be a good job and I'm totally broke and underpaid, I often think about. (laughs) If I were a plumber, I'd make a lot more money. (laughs) Yes. I also think about... But then again, you have to deal with, you know, all the, the unpleasantness that comes with being a plumber. So I think we probably well, went out in that regard. Well, one of those unpleasantnesses, though, is calls in the middle of the night, which, you know, he points, Jessica points out. Um, and he's like, yeah, but they get paid <laughs> when they do it. <laughs> Cop salary, he doesn't get paid extra. Right. But um, I think it, it, yeah. it adds this nice little, I think, touch to who the character is, these layering of the characters. And it also, mm-hmm. like, I think, again, echoes... The, the vibe of this episode that money makes the world go round yep. and nobody has it. Even people who seem like they have it don't. And money is sort of driving everybody's decision making here. And I mean, even, you know, as we said, you know, even the, our culprit, you know, Donald is, I mean, he's obviously reprehensible, but there's something even very compelling about him as well. How so? But when, when he admits to the crime, he's just like, there's this, a kind of coldness to his delivery that's chilling and I think which is effective and I think works really well because you know he's saying to Sabrina he's like yeah this was my chance to really make it big and I didn't get it so you know here we are it's it's an interesting it's an interesting pairing with Binky because I mean both admit you know what they've done but they read so differently because with Binky we can't help but still love him he's like sort of a I don't know a lovable rake if you will But, you know, Donald is like a cold-blooded killer. And like, and, and I think that his performance really captures that and makes that very clear, that final scene. What else? I mean, I made some notes about fashion, but we don't have to get into it. Oh, I think this was the episode where I learned about duct tapes on locks as a uh, way to keep doors open. 
I think as a kid, I learned that from this, but it, it might have also been from Woodward and Bernstein mm. and all the president's men. It's one of the two. I know. I know when I think about, you know, things that I think about together, it's often Morty wrote and all the president's men. <laughs> I also think that at the country club when they're eating lunch, it appears that the salads they're consuming have like a mountain of cottage cheese on top. And um, it just made oh. me want to barf. And it also just feels like so delightfully 1980s. And so white. Yeah. Real waspy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, I got nothing else to say. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to end. So I think we've done a pretty good job unpacking this episode, dissecting it, giving you all things to think about. So for the Cabaco Gazette, I am TJ. I'm Bridget. And we will talk to you next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>